Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. And I'm Adam Bubb. And First Act is the podcast where we draw back the curtain on the passions, the struggles and the backstories of Australia's most dynamic business owners. We have loved bringing you these stories throughout 2022 and can't wait to bring you more in 2023. Now, if you love what you're hearing, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. We deeply appreciate you lending your ears to us each week for these amazing stories. Now, today's guest is a market disruptor whose advice is, shall we say, essential for any entrepreneur. (laughs) Richard Turner is the author of the new book, The Essential Entrepreneur, which is based on his learnings from running not just one, but four successful businesses. One of those is Zen Energy, the second largest electricity retailer in South Australia, and soon to become Australia's first clean energy utility. His into his third billion dollar startup and his move between food distribution, labour hire and renewable energy. He's mentored hundreds of early stage startup founders through their journey. And if you want to know more about anything to do with starting a business, reinvention or industry disruption, well, you've come to the right man. Welcome, Richard. Hi, Sis and hi, Adam. Yeah, great to be with you both today. So uh, looking forward to a good chat. So are we. Uh, we always start, you know, any good chat starts with an icebreaker. Uh, we start with our first act icebreaker. This is to, to really throw you, to, to put you on the spot. I promise you it's nothing controversial, nothing off-brand or anything. This is, I, I, I'm excited to hear your answer to this one, honestly. If you could name <laughs> three brands, I really hype this one up. If you could name three brands you can't live without, any three brands, whether it's Nike, Facebook, Verve Clicquot Champagne, what would those three brands be? And <laughs> that, was, wow. that was very specific, Adam. <laughs> <and they laughs> your three brands. No, look, I'm not. I mind. I'm. I am wearing Nikes today. Yeah, I may be. I may have been on Facebook a bit earlier, and no, I have not had champagne yet. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, let me think about this. So. I guess I have to be able to communicate. So my mobile phone, which I have an Apple, so I'll, I'll have to say Apple is probably my ver- my first one. Probably, well, champagne is actually not a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, official um, official champagne with the capital C. From I think France. at the end of end of a long day or or a good glass <laughs> of wine. Um, God, there's so many of them. I'm going to go for a uh, a company I've actually been mentoring recently, which is a. Uh, probably the closest Australian sparkling we have to French champagne. And uh, I'll tell you what, my wife won't drink anything but French champagne, but when I gave her this, she said, wow, this is really good. It's a company called Deviation Road from the Adelaide Hills, which is a really good Australian sparkling. So there's a, there's a, a wine brand. Um, what else? 
Well, you got me on this, guys. <laughs> I think the ice is broken. I think the ice is broken. Okay, no, um, we, can, we can settle on two and maybe come back to us on that third. Let's loop back with you. I'm thinking of something something progressive like a like an electric car. Um, I know we all sort of gravitate to Tesla, but I'm looking forward to some of the other electric car companies, particularly the European car companies. Uh, coming out to Australia. I mean, actually, we're going to see a flood of electric cars in the next couple of years, so I'm excited about that in general. Um, even your Toyotas, your Hyundais, they're all they're all coming out now, which will bring the price down dramatically. So you're what we'd call a serial entrepreneur. Was was that something that you were born with? Were you one of those kids with the big ideas, selling things in the schoolyard? No, look, I've always had lots of ideas. Like, I guess it just comes... Well, I think, look, I think it's a natural thing. I, I work with lots of entrepreneurs who come from different backgrounds. I did grow up in a business family, so I was used to that. But I see so many entrepreneurs come from difficult backgrounds that, you know, didn't do all the schooling. Um, yeah, and, and quite often it's not those bound by the rules of education. It's just people who think differently. And, and um, you know, I get asked the question all the time, but entrepreneurs born or made. And I think it's, it's a real combination. It's more of a personality trait. Uh, I think that people just have that unique ability to focus really intently on things and see things that other people just don't see. And we're in a rapidly changing economy. And those, you know, the majority of the people, majority of the population don't like change and are scared of change. But Entrepreneurs just seem to be able to see opportunities all over the place, and and the faster things change, the more opportunities they are. So, they are just unique people. And myself, I guess, I have always seen opportunities all over the place, and and um, yeah, I, I'm not sure why that is, but uh, it's just, I guess, a, a personality trait. Do you think that entrepreneurial mindset is essential then to to a successful startup? I think it plays a big part of it. Uh, I think that ability to be able to really focus on the concept at hand, um, being tenacious. Like I see a lot of, as I said, um, entrepreneurs coming from difficult backgrounds, a lot of lot are often Im- immigrants who just have the tenacity to want to change their life circumstances and they find a way. You know, with those that are fortunate enough to come from, you know, wealthier backgrounds or a business family, the mentors are inside the family and quite often they get this mindset passed on to them um, or they grow up in that environment. But but others just have that tenacity to go and find the people that are going to support them and back them or give them pieces of advice or education. But they've got that inherent um, ability just to chase it down and find out. And um, that's what a lot of people don't have. So they're not scared of change. They just go there and, and chase it down and and get their ideas validated and um, test the market, find people they want to sell the product to, do all that. They just inherently know how to refine their ideas, you know, go and test them, ask lots of questions and listen. You know, listening is the most important thing that people often fail to do these days, you know, when they're doing some research on a product and that might be with family and friends or it might be in the wider market they're testing an idea on. But just asking those open-ended questions of what do you think about this product? And people will say, you know, I think it's great, but can it do this? Can it come in this color? Can it come in this size? I'd buy it if it was $10 cheaper. You know, all those things that people often fail to do. They'll send out email 
um, surveys and things like that, but you just don't get that sort of quality of answer, which you know, people need to be able to do these days. We'll get a little bit further into a bit more about some of the learnings from your book, uh, The Essential Entrepreneur, as we go along. But I just want to go back to that, how you mentioned, you know, you grew up with your, your father as, um, mm. as a, a bit of a mentor, right? As he ran a meat company. How much did that influence yes. your dreams of wanting to start businesses yourself? Yeah, it was interesting. So I, I was the youngest of three boys, and this is back in the um, – um, well, I guess going into the business was probably in the 70s, but I was the first one to have the chance to go to university and uh, and that was sort of in the early 80s. I did a Bachelor of Business and uh, I was one of the first cohorts actually to go through university and learn computer coding, you know, just after it had come out of punch cards in schools. Long before and, it was um, the cool thing to do. <laughs> yeah, long before it was the cool thing to do. You know, we re- it was actually quite cool, but it's just, you know, we just didn't have much of it back then. So having, you know, being one of those first cohorts to go through and learn computer coding was really cool. Yeah, yes, and yeah. Doing it, doing it on a screen and on a keyboard, as you could imagine. And the the meat company was a meat wholesaling processing distribution business. So it was quite a, a large business. But back then, the it was only the accounts that was computerized. And if you could imagine this, it was on an old Wang computer that had a five and a half inch floppy disk. <laughs> that was the extent oh. of our accounts accounts computer back then. We just purchased a, a big Hewlett Packard 3000, like a mini mainframe, which back then had to go in its own big air conditioned room. It had a, a CPU that was the size of a washing machine. We had hard drives that were 250 megabytes, you know, which now would fit on your fingernail. And, <laughs> um, you, know, um, you know, big uh, line printers that clattered away and the reel-to-reel tape drives and coming out of university, it was quite, you know, I was told this is my responsibility. I've got to come into this business, harness this massive computer and start automating all the, well, as much as I could, the the major processes in the business. So I came into the business, um, sort of sat alongside the people that were putting the system in, learned how to program in, in a 4G language back then. It was called Cognos Powerhouse. And um, so started working on different systems. And and, um, and the one thing that was a big process for this company was we had cattle buyers going all around the country buying thousands of head, head of cattle, tens of thousands probably, and we had to capture all the live weights, the prices, where they came from, who bought them, what the breeds were. Um, and the you know the live yields and the and the processed yields and understanding our true cost of product and and all the insights that went with that and we never got that in any sort of timely manner because it took literally weeks to process that information manually. So one of the first programs I set up was this livestock uh, uh, livestock management system, and suddenly we were able to capture all that information, keyed in live as it was happening and gain all those insights. And for a young kid like me, I mean, I was literally 21, 22 doing this, and seeing suddenly the information and the insights that we got from that data and how we were able to react to the market and change the way that business operated was really my first insight to disrupting an industry. Um, it gave that, that business a massive advantage, um, and the company grew, it turned public, 
Um, the export division was a company called TNR Pastoral, and that just continued to grow. Um, new owners came in and, and took over that new leadership, but it's now a multi-billion dollar business in Australia. It's now called Thomas Foods, um, remarkable company. In fact, it's the biggest private meat processing company in the in the country. But as a young kid growing up in all of that, and, and also working in a meatworks where, as you could imagine, the diversity of cultures of people um, working in a place like that was remarkable. So before I went to uni, I used to go in there on the school holidays and dad would make me wash the walls and clean the drains and pack the offal. You know, apologies <laughs> to the vegetarians out there, but you know, it's, a, it's sort of pretty grounding stuff and you learn the value of money pretty quick and you learn the value of hard work pretty quick and, and working with everyone and having to get on with everyone was was such an incredible lesson when I was young. So combining all that with with a bit of a taste of innovation and disruption, I guess, was probably how it started and how it set me up for the rest of my life. So then how do you go from that? You've jumped into your your dad's family business. You're working in there. Mm. You've, you're automating. You're innovating. Things are really streamlined. Then how do you go, actually, I want to um, give this a crack myself. I'm going to start my own business. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, when the company went public, which was 86, that was uh, still a long time ago, um, my brothers and I had the choice, you know, do we stay on with the public company, which was going to be pretty boring, or do we go and do our own thing? And so we, sticking with the food industry, we looked at what are the trends going on around the world, and we looked at the US, and um, and we could see that there was suddenly an emergence of what we would call um, total food service company. So this this business was a company that sold wholesale supplies of product into cafes and restaurants and takeaways and things. So my first company with my brother was called Regency Food Services. And in Australia at the time, if you had a restaurant or a takeaway, you really had supplies for almost everything. Because it was all multi-temperature zone, um, you know, you had frozen food supplies, you had grocery supplies, you had dairy supplies, you had, you know, um, chilled goods supplies, um, you know, you had supplies for everything, packaging. Um, so we thought, well, let's Let's try and be the first ones, you know, or one of the first ones in Australia, definitely the first ones in South Australia to start to put this total food service business together, which was a big task because you had to have multiple temperature zone warehousing. You had to have delivery vehicles that could do this as well. So it was a, it was a real challenge to get going. So we thought, well, we can't do this for thousands of products. So let's start with a simple market, which was takeaways and to supply a, a general you know, chicken shop or a fish shop with its takeaway products, you could do it with 30 or 40 odd lines. You had a few frozen seafood lines and snack food lines and cooking oils and groceries and things. So we put all this together and started started out with the takeaway market being our main market. And the business just took off um, really quickly and grew really quickly. And we were able to self-fund it at that point. And then we got to the restaurants and cafes where we're dealing primarily with chefs. And we had to look at what's our competitive advantage that we could develop for that market. And I remember sitting down with my brother one day saying, look, we're, we're working the hours that every other distribution company works. We're working from early in the morning, you know, four or five in the morning loading trucks. And, you know, we, we finished our job and we're going home, you know, early afternoon. That's just the way the industry worked. And I said to my brother, you know, we're, the market we're servicing is hospitality and they work 
almost opposite hours of the clock to we work and the people that are placing the orders are the chefs and chefs are grumpy people at the best of times and they'll <laughs> at the end of their shift at sort of 10 o'clock at night they'll say you know what I want you know and slam the phone down and um, and of course you get the orders wrong and we'd have to send out expensive couriers the next day to fix orders up and it's you know it's always our fault it's never the never the customer's fault <laughs> so we thought how can we now work the same hours as our as our customers work so we we thought about this and we actually ended up setting up the first 24-hour food distribution warehouse in the country, which was which was a huge step. We had to do a whole enterprise bargaining agreement with our staff to enable them to work 24 hours. We ran three tele-sales shifts from about 8 in the morning through to um, 10 at night so we could talk to the chefs when they finished their, their trade. Um, we could build a relationship with them. We could confirm their orders. Uh, and then when we shut the orders off at 10 o'clock, um, we spent the next two hours and, and we were still sort of on the leading edge of technology with our computer systems. And we developed a uh, quite an amazing system where we could um, run picking sheets for all our stock in the warehouse per truck, per bin location. Uh, so we could do one lap of the warehouse with our storeman for every truck that we loaded. And we had about 15 big multi-temperature zone trucks. So we picked all this stock. We staged it in the staging area, we called it. We had telescopic loaders that went into the trucks and loaded the trucks. So we had a very automated, very rapid picking and and loading system. So it ended up we were the last to take orders. We had the relationship with the chefs. We got the orders right because we were confirming the orders with them. We were picking the stock overnight. We were the first to have the trucks loaded and on the road in the morning. And as you can imagine, the, the the customers just swirled and the company took off again. And, and I remember getting the call from the CEO at Qantas Flight Catering. I think it was January 1996, I reckon, and uh, saying, Richard, we're going to give you the, the food business for Qantas. And it was just amazing. That's, I mean, getting a call call like that, building a business in that time, we're talking from, you know, 1987 to 1996 and then having the country's the national airline kind of going, we 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 want you. That's a, I mean, that's that's an amazing achievement. Yeah, it was incredible, and we were still quite young. And uh, to have that sort of response from again disrupting the market, and we did we did some other things with that company too. About the same time, about 1996, we. We're in a very similar situation we are now. There, there was a very big shortage of hospitality staff. Um, there was a cafe explosion going on at the time, and um, we thought, and, and a lot of lot of uh, sales staff were coming off the road saying, "Oh, you know, the manager of this place wants me to try and talk to the chef at this other place down the road and try and pinch him to work for me." And you know, and, and <laughs> our, our, our sales staff were being used as you know recruitment staff half the time to try and pinch staff from other restaurants and other places to to go and work for them. And um, it was strange that I sat back and thought about this and I thought, I wonder if there's an opportunity here for a hospitality staffing agency. And we actually had a young girl helping us recruit our own staff and she had a background in hospitality and Christy was the name and I said to Christy, what do you think of this idea? You know, is, do you think there's an opportunity here? And, and if there is, would you be interested in, in running this business for us? So she took a day or two to think about it and came back to me and said, Richard, I think you're right absolutely there's a need for this and would love to give it a go. So we set up a, a company called Regency Staffing as like an, an affiliate business to the food business. And 
very quickly, we had about 300 chefs working for us within a couple of years. And uh, we had 10 chefs in a Qantas. We had chefs in all the big hotels around the place. And, you know, we, d- we did this initially as a service for our customers, thinking we'll create a flexible workforce that will really help our customers out. That will make them love us and they'll buy their food from us. What we didn't actually realize when we started it, of course, the people who order the food are the chefs. So if you own the chefs, you really own the food supply. So it became this sort of circular economy. Um, and it was amazing. So that, that, the business just took off and grew again through a, another quite radical innovation. And this is where, with innovation and disruption, it's a matter of finding these things as a as a smaller, newer business that established people just can't compete with. They just can't change the way they do business, these larger entities. And you're really leveraging their, um, their company size against them. So, you know, there's a lesson in there for smaller companies starting up. You know, find that unique thing that you can change the way the market operates to really create that advantage. Yeah, you're you're in control of that. You know, like you said, you're talking about mindset and entrepreneurial mindset. It's it's being open mm. to those opportunities when they when they kind of come to you. Uh, I think what's so interesting is that you've you've founded a number of companies as we as we've said, you know, four companies there, and, and then you've also um, you've sold companies, and then you've stepped mm. out away as from regency staffing. You step away as a founder. Um, how do you know your job's done? With these, with with a company, and it's time to move on to the next one because I don't. <laughs> you, with your um, with um, Regency Foods, it's now um, owned by Bid Food. It's a multi-billion-dollar company. Not every business owner yeah. has that kind of strike rate. What what makes it? You you know what? How do you get to a level of success and go right next venture? It was interesting. You, you, you know, you work through all these different ideas you've got for improving the business and creating a unique advantage. Um, and I guess you know the time's up when someone approaches you like Bidfood because um, they, they were a South African company. They Well, they still are, but went to the UK. They rationalized the market in the UK, bought the biggest distributors over there, and they had a model for expanding internationally, and then they came to Australia. And they saw our company and they said, that's the model. That's the model we want to have for Australia. We just won the Australian Food Service Distributor of the Year two years in a row. They said, we want that company, and they made no secret of it. They said, we want to buy your company. And and um, uh, we said no about the first four times. <laughs> they came back to us, you know, about five times within a year, just upping the price. And I guess it gets to a certain point where you think, yep, I think, I've, I think we've done as much as we can do here. <laughs> and and um, we, we stepped back, and um, that, that was it. But I think... You know, it's a combination of someone coming to the table with the right offer and you think how much more can we do with this business and because at some point it needs to go into bigger hands with deeper pockets and and um, and someone else can really take it on its on its entire journey which which it is now in fact the young girl I employed as my receptionist when she was 20 is now the CEO of that multi-billion dollar business which is remarkable um, you know and she's a gun but you know, that's there's a lesson there in employing people. Don't just employ people for a job. You want to employ people that can become part of your leadership team and develop within the business, no matter how old they are or what they're doing. Um, and she's a prime example of that. But another thing with businesses that you always need to ask yourself, and I think this has probably helped set us up again for the the Bidvest or Bidfood um, takeover, was what business am I in? And because um, quite often 
businesses, particularly a business like that, actually has three or four different businesses inside of it. But usually there's only one business where you actually add the most value and you've got to understand where your core skills are and and what you do really well and what are parts of the company that are just a distraction and and don't make money or cause headaches or whatever. And, And for us, we knew we were good at purchasing product. We, we knew we were good at running a the logistically advanced warehouse and we knew we were good at marketing and sales. But one thing that always gave us a big headache was running a fleet of very expensive trucks uh, because drivers usually, when they're employee drivers, there's a sort of physical limit that they're prepared to uh, work at. Um, the trucks would break down, drivers would be sick, um, they had to be cleaned and maintained. You know, there was, it's just, for us, it was just such a distraction to what we knew we were really good at, what we enjoyed doing and where we actually made the money. So we went to our drivers one day and said, look, who would be interested in owning their own vehicle? And what if we paid you a percentage of the value of stock you took out? And we worked out with them that to maintain their current salary, and I'm sort of going back, thinking now what the history was, I think it was about four and three quarter percent or something like that we worked out. If we paid them that, they would earn the same money they're on now, plus enough money additionally to pay for their um, maintenance of their truck, their cleaning, their um, you know having a spare driver, all, all the additional on costs were covered certainly within that percentage. But they knew in the back of their heads that they could do more and, and you only got to get one or two to take it on and then suddenly everyone sees the opportunity and goes for it. And and when we did this, it was fascinating because they could only do about 25 or 30 deliveries a day you know, as employees. But suddenly, overnight, these guys became supermen and, and they were suddenly doing 50 or 60 deliveries a day. They were earning double the money they earned before. Our customers became their customers. You know, They were going into the freezers, rotating the stock, upselling the customers on everything. And uh, it was remarkable. And by buying the trucks back off of us, each of those trucks were worth 150 grand. So, you know, we got probably one and a half million dollars back into the business as capital. So we could put it into the things that we knew we did really well that added value to the business. And uh, and they were happy as Larry because they were making a fortune and, and doing a great job. So, you know, just one of those things that you always have to ask yourself, what business am I in and what could be better done by someone else? And, um, and keep the focus on where you add the most value is a, is a really important point for people to take on. Oh, so many valuable insights in that just then, Richard. Look, um, yeah. we'll be back with you in just a moment. Your exceptional brain has so much more to tell us, I'm sure. <laughs> we just need to take a short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with Richard Turner to chat with him about his uh, founder journey. And what I'd like to dive into next is Zen Energy. With uh, Zen Energy, you were one of the pioneers of the clean energy movement. So what challenges did you face in disrupting such a traditional sector? Yeah, 
changing a traditional sector like the energy sector was an enormous task initially. Timing is everything. And with that, back in 2004 when we started, and you imagine the landscape, there was no solar companies or very, very few. They were, they were quite um, sort of very early adapter-type companies, more hobby companies back then if, um, you know, whatever existed. But there was no mainstream commercial solar businesses. But it was at a time when John Howard, who was Prime Minister at the time, was just talking about what you were reading in the papers, you know, stories about climate change being a thing. And um, John Howard was just starting to talk about subsidies for reducing carbon in the home. So there was there was things happening. There was triggers out there in the market that were starting to indicate there was an opportunity. But at the same time, my kids were playing in the cubby house at the back of the yard. And... Um, they wanted to put a little radio and a TV set out there and there was no power at the back of the yard and, and I said, okay, well, let's, let's just jump on the back of the car. We'll go down to the hobby shop and we'll see what we can find, thinking I was going to come home with some sort of battery. And um, we got into the shop and we were looking around at things and we found a little solar panel, tiny little solar panel, uh, an inverter and battery and regulators. And we put together this little 12-volt system for the cubby house and stood back and I thought, oh, my God, this all, this all works. And, and the kids were having a great time and, and um, sort of put my business hat on and thinking about the house. And my father-in-law was a senior electrician and I said to Peter, I can't see any technical barriers towards this technology actually running a house. And, and he said, no, there's none really. You've just got to find someone to make the componentry and, and um, you know, regulations have got to allow for it to connect to the grid. And anyway, I, I started doing my research and found a company in Germany called SMA that just started making these small solar inverters for the home. And then also found a company in China that's um, called ET Solar that's now, I think, the fourth largest manufacturer of solar panels in the world. But back then, just had one small hand production line. And so we sat down and we had this conversation about working with the Germans and, and trying to integrate all these components and build, because no one understood how solar worked back then. You know, it was really in the realms of weird science. science. You know, how do you make energy from the sun? Um, so I thought, well, the only way to get over that in presenting it to the market was to put it into a system. So we coined the phrase home energy and we called the system, we called the company Zen, which was a great brand back then. So Zen was, well, Ross Garno, now our chairman, calls it um, zero emissions now. Back then, it was, it was, Zen was an acronym for zero energy. It was about balancing generation and demand. But what people fell in love with um, was the Eastern connotation. You know, the, this is wisdom, enlightenment, and a new way of life, which perfect branding for a renewable energy brand. But people just fell in love with the idea of energy independence and didn't understand how the energy was made from the sun, but they just understood that it happened and they didn't have to worry about understanding the componentry. We packaged packaged it all up into the Zen home energy system. Everything was branded Zen and we launched the company and it just took off like a rocket. And, um, you know, we were the fourth fastest growing company in the company in the country at one stage. We were certainly the fastest growing company in South Australia two years in a row. You know, we won the Australian Entrepreneur of the Year in 2010. And But after we'd installed about 30 or 40,000 systems, we thought, well, these systems we're installing have um, 
uh, a 20, 20 to 25 year system life. So we thought, well, we can't keep installing these forever. So, and it was also important that we actually created a link between the energy coming from the grid and these solar and battery systems that were sort of behind the meter. So transitioning to become an energy retailer was an, a really important step for us, but that was certainly beyond my skills. You know, I, I sort of understood the solar and the battery thing and being able to get that business going and the branding and we positioned it well. Um, but I certainly didn't understand the complexities of the energy markets and the regulations that controlled energy in the grid. And then in 2015, so Professor Ross Garno did the 2008 and 2011 Garno review for the federal government, where the federal government commissioned him to do this review to say, what is the impact of climate change going to have on our economy longer term? And then not long after that, he also, for the federal government, initiated the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA. He designed the first carbon pricing mechanism. Yeah, a remarkable man, but Ross didn't just want to be the architect of the change. He really wanted to be part of the change, and he was looking for a company that he could join. And he was introduced to Zen, and he said, well, you know, you've got the people, you've got the technology can I go on this journey with you? And we said, yes, of course, Ross, we actually need you because we've developed this technology along with big solar farms and big wind farms, but the big batteries, we need to get this stuff happening and connected to the main grid um, to enable the, the energy system to transition to renewables. So Ross joined us in 2015 and uh, we're now on that journey. And this is where you have to ask yourself as founders, do I have all the skills to go on the journey I'm going on? Because with Regency Foods, my brothers and I had that knowledge. We came from a food background and we could see where we wanted to go and how we wanted to develop it. But with this energy company, you know, I coming from a cubby house startup to, you know, get part of the way with my own skills, but then realizing I had to have all these other technologies and and um, economic understanding of what was going on in the market. That, that were skills I didn't have, so I had to find those people, um, or they found us uh, through, I guess, good media and good success that we'd had, and um, came on the journey with us. And now Zen's on that journey of being the company's first clean energy utility, and already in South Australia, the second largest generator and retailer to AGL and. And uh, most of AGL senior staff now work for Zen and around the country, the, the company will soon be the second largest generator nationally or, or retailer nationally. It's, it's an amazing story. Uh, and, and one of those things I think you capture in, in The Essential Entrepreneur is that idea of how do, you, how do you sort out from what is a great idea and how do you how do you really stress test that and figure out that it's got legs and it's got something to to offer the world? How do you make sure that your good intentions are going to make good business sense as far as matching up idea and commercial? Yeah, and that comes right back to the very beginnings of any business where you've got to validate that market and you've really got to test it hard. And uh, and as I said earlier on, you know, you've really got to go out to potential customers and ask the difficult questions, you know, and... Um, and, and validate the business model to make sure because have, you've got to have a customer that's willing to pay the price for your product or service. And in my role as the entrepreneur in residence at the University of South Australia and also working with the 
the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, I've mentored hundreds of companies and, and seen hundreds of companies sort of go through the startup stage and the scaling stage. And you know, it's, it's not a straightforward journey. You've got to validate your market. And the whole process of starting a business too is, is a very different process to growing a business. So starting a business is the ideation and the creation stage and you know, testing and validating the market, maybe piloting some ideas, getting the product market fit, making sure there is a customer. But then you've got to really sit down and do the business plan. And I remember spending hours and hours and hours with my accountant just going over and over the numbers. How much of this product do I have to sell to make a profit? You know, what is my true cost of goods? And if you're importing product, you've got to think of things like import duties and taxes and logistics costs and, you know, costs and containers are going through the roof. So you've got to make sure you know what your landed cost is. But how much of this product do I have to sell to make a make a, a margin? You know, what products and services are, am I selling? You know, that's another question. Um, what markets and customers particularly am I selling to? What infrastructure do I need? So when I say infrastructure, what technology do I need? Accounts packages, any specific software that I need? What people do I need? Is it just me to start with or is it, you know, a couple of other people with different skills or, or business partners? What physical infrastructure do I need? Do I need an office? Do I need a warehouse? Do I need trucks? You know, what what physical assets do I need? And then how am I going to finance it? So am I going to finance it from my own savings? Family and friends are going to help me. You know, sometimes you're lucky and you've got family and friends that want to see you have a go in a sort of lower risk environment. Um, Or do I need an angel investor or go to the bank if I've got some assets to finance against. You know, the banks don't like taking risks on a startup business, so they'll want to know what assets you've got that can go with security. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's hard work and the timing's got to be right. You know, you've got to ask yourself questions about what is it that I'm selling? Is it a product or is it a service? Because they're very different companies or businesses. If you're just selling yourself as a service or an extension of yourself, you only make money when you're actually working, which is always a challenge. And it's very difficult to scale those companies. And venture capital firms are very hesitant to invest in service companies. So if there's a way of productizing your service, turning it into something or having a platform as an extension of your service that enables you to sell day and night all over the world, as opposed to just providing a service in your local market, it becomes a very different company then. And thinking big is is an interesting concept because what I work with a lot of companies on is actually because you get so busy day to day and you can't see the wood from the trees and you just you just sit there and you're stuck in this rut and the business just doesn't go anywhere. Um, imagining the business in five years' time at 10 times the size is a really interesting exercise and I encourage everyone to do that. So sit down and when I put it to people, think of the business being 10 times the size, they go, oh, it will never be that. I can't imagine that. You know, and I say, well, sit down and try and imagine it. And it's a real mind-expanding experience, but you sit down and you you imagine what it looks like in, say, five years' time. What, as I said, when you're starting a company, what revenues are going to be? So 10 times the revenue, start with that. Um, what margin you're going to have, what profit you're going to have, and then work through that whole profit and loss statement, you know, of here's the revenue, 
um, this is the expenses, this is how much I'm making, this is the products and services I'm selling at that point, this is the markets and customers I'm selling to, this is the infrastructure I'm going to have, this is the people I'm going to have, do the organisation chart, understand what that company looks like and have it in your head what it's going to look like in five years' time. But then if you work back year by year to where you are now and what changes have to happen each of those years to be able to get to that five-year plan, suddenly it all starts to appear in front of you and you think, oh, okay, I can get there and this is what I need to do. And then you focus on what must happen next year because that's where you have the most clarity. That's right in front of you. And then, you know, the next few years out might be a bit fuzzier, but, you know, and every business plan is a living thing. It always changes. There's nothing fixed in stone. So you just change it as you go. But having having that vision of where you want to go, and, and vision is such a critical thing for companies to have right. You've got to have that vision statement so that not only you, it reflects you and your passion and the why you get out of bed in the morning and why you do what you do. You've got to have that passion because that what is that is, is what excites everyone around you. So, and it's not just for your people, it's for your customers, it's for all your stakeholders. Your suppliers need to understand the passion and the vision and what you want to achieve, what's the long-term objective because if you're not going to get the best price from your suppliers or the support from your suppliers if they don't know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um and your financiers, your bankers, you know, you're being able to present and you'll find yourself presenting all the time when you're in business to everyone, not just your customers. It's, you know, and your people are the most important asset. And like for, I'll go back to my Zen Energy business, people loved being part of the transition of the energy sector to clean energy. People just loved that idea and wanted to be part of that journey and people came to us. And, uh, you know, if you can be passionate about it reflect that in your vision people will come to you like bees to a honeypot it's just um, but so many companies just don't have a vision don't know what you know how can you create a culture and a passion if if there's just no vision so yeah you're absolutely right you need to to be very clear on your purpose and your why and to be able to take people with you. Uh, Richard, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. So <laughs> the essential... I think it was a really broad compass. I probably spoke too much, but anyway, <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. We did cover a lot of ground. Now, if you want to find out more about uh, entrepreneurship, well, a great place to start is Richard's book, The Essential Entrepreneur. It's available online at essentialentrepreneur.com, Booktopia, and all good bookstores. So thanks again for joining us today, Richard. Oh, thanks, Sis, and thanks, Adam. It was a great conversation. Yeah, Richard, look, we could we could keep on talking all day, but, you know, we've all got businesses to start. <laughs> I've got billion-dollar yes. companies to begin and start my five-year yes. plan right now after talking to you. Thank you for inspiring <laughs> us. Uh, it's been fantastic. So thank you. Thank you to our listeners as well for joining us today and every week, uh, each week for First Act. Uh, this year. We can't wait to bring you more conversations just like this in 2023. Have a great new year. Bye.